Okay. This is <laughs> my sweetie pie. He's here to give me some encouragement. And this is the house he built. It took him 12 years. He had to cut the trees off the land and then build a sawmill and then saw it up and let it uh, all dry and then plane it down, do whatever you do and pour concrete, dig holes and took a long time. But I know a lot of y'all wonder where we live and how we live. That's the stairway he made. I'm on my computer, so I'm just kind of rolling around. This is Debbie Pearl. And today I'm going to be teaching Esther. And uh, if you want to turn in your Bible to the book of Esther, uh, while I was studying it, I always teach the very first few chapters, you know, about the beauty contest. But this time I wanted to really study in depth the rest of the book, and I was amazed at what I learned. Uh, the book of Esther is the 17th book in the Old Testament, and it is just like the rest of the Old Testament. It is a history of God's people, the Jewish people. That's what God wanted us to know, how he works with people, and he chose the Jewish people to work with. And Esther is during the when the Jews are in bondage with the Medes and Persians. You remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel was a young boy with his friends taken into Babylon, which Babylon was the world leader then. And so Daniel and his friends were castrated. Now, I'm telling you, if I was Daniel's mama, I would have been praying big time that that wouldn't happen. But God needed an ambassador, and he chose Daniel. And sometimes being an ambassador, can you, you give out a lot. <laughs> Daniel gave out a lot. So anyway, you remember in the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar had the dream with the statue, the head of gold, and on through, well, that was Babylon. And then the Medes and the, you remember the handwriting on the wall? Well, that was when the Medes and Persians were, were sneaking underneath the waterway and they took over. And so now God, but Daniel was still there, but he was an old man by then, or he was older. He was just a boy when he was taken. So he had risen and was basically second man on the totem pole during Babylon. And now the Medes and Persians have taken over. And so we're going to have 10 things that I learned from studying Esther this time. And the first thing that I learned is God needs or has needed in the past ambassadors in high places. And sometimes you lose your human rights when you're given a special calling from God. And that's the way it is. And Daniel lost his freedom. He became kind of a court slave. He lost his manhood, but he was given a lot. It, it, he had great power, great prestige. He had a great gift from God, a supernatural gift, to where he was able to interpret dreams, and he was able to even note another person's dream. You might remember a lot of the dreams that Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar. You might remember the uh, Daniel lion's den being thrown into the fire and all of the things that, that Daniel went through. So he was the ambassador for the Babylonians. And then the Medes and Persians take over. So God needed another ambassador. Now, it's interesting uh, how things work out, which we would not, we would not think it was good, or we wouldn't even think it was uh, uh, spiritual, I guess I would say. But the second thing that I learned in the book of Esther is that sometimes God chooses young women to be his ambassador. You remember Mary? Well, Esther was that young girl. She had to lose her life it was a little life, but it was her life 
to be God's ambassador. She didn't ask for the job. She probably didn't particularly want the job. And God gave her, gave Daniel a gift, supernatural gift of, of knowing things and uh, interpreting dreams. And he gave pretty Esther beauty, extreme beauty. And that extreme beauty is what he used to put her in the second highest position in, with the Medes and Persians. So Daniel was second highest with the Babylonians. And now young Esther is going to be the second in power to so much so that the king said, I'll give you half of my kingdom. He really liked her. Okay, the book of Esther begins with the king inviting the rulers from all 127 providences so he could show off how rich and powerful he was. He liked to show off that he was rich and powerful. Most of the known world was his kingdom. It stretched from Ethiopia to India. It's a big space. It included people from a lot of different languages. And God was setting up so his ambassador, the one that he wanted in place, which was going to be Esther, would be the queen of all of the known world at that time. God needed a woman who would be kind, loving, good heart, so that a selfish, godless man would dearly love her and dearly appreciate her. And so God picked out Esther. He found Esther. That was the woman that he needed. It doesn't seem like what God would do is put a young virgin girl that was loving and kind and obedient in this situation, but he needed an ambassador. God doesn't do things like us good Christians think is the right thing to do all the time. The third thing I learned as I read Esther is God sees the big picture. We see the here and now and how it's affecting us, but God sees the whole generation of people to come. And he knew without Esther, the whole Jewish race would be knocked out. So God was raising up Esther and putting her in that position. And now the problem was at the time, the king already had a wife, <laughs> already had a queen. The queen, I mean, God could have given her a heart attack <laughs> or something like that. Queen Vashti went from being a queen to being nothing. And the reason she became nothing is because she assumed that's the fourth thing we need to learn that I learned from Esther. And that was never assume. There's one thing that we've learned in the last 55 years of ministry, and that is to avoid assuming. No matter who you are, no matter what, what you do, there's always a Judas that's ready to sell you out lies, whatever. So you need to stay humble and only assume that you are where you are by the grace of God and that it could change in a moment's time. The reason I'm telling you this about of assuming is I bet I've had hundreds of wives tell me they're talking about their husband and they're in hated attitude and they lash out and say, my husband doesn't love me. He doesn't treat me with love. And I say, well, how do you treat him? It's his Christian duty to love me. And, you know, I can tell that they're really put out that I would question them on why their husband, husband does not love them. And I want to tell you that when a man is doing his duty, Duty does not, duty, you spell D-U-T-Y, love is L-O-V-E, and that's two different things. And they come from two different things. Love is not magic. Love is a reward. It is a natural response of someone giving to you and you giving to someone else. And, um, and a man just doesn't love because he it's his duty or because he's the husband. Many thankless women will get 50 years old 
and they will find themselves terribly alone. A man will just take it and take it and take it, and then his kids get grown, and he's had he's just done. Of course, it goes the other way, too. There are a lot of men who just, just don't appreciate their hard-working, good-attitude wife, but on a, as far as what I have counseled, which have been thousands of people, usually men have enough natural uh, want to survive uh, that if a woman is good and uh, hardworking, they're going to do what they can to keep her. But there are men, they get so caught up in pornography and other stuff that they just knocking holes in their own ship. And when the time of life comes when they need somebody to stand with them, their ship's not going to be floating too good. But anyway, this is about Vashta. She's the queen at that time. And she was known to be the most beautiful woman in the whole kingdom. Nobody could touch her. And she'd been the queen for at least three and a half years, and she was very powerful. And she had a whole house of women that she had power over to do whatever she wanted. <clears throat> and so she was used to getting her own way. And the king only called for her occasionally. The king could call for any of those concubines or extra women. He had, you know, he would call them by name, but he wanted the one woman that was his queen. So anyway, they, the king had a big party right on the first chapter of Esther. When you read scripture, he was having a big party with all of the lieutenants and all of the, uh, the rulers all over the world that they knew of had come together for 140 days to uh, have this party and to go around all over the kingdom and show how powerful and how uh, rich the king was. And they were drinking a lot of wine. And so toward the end of their 140 days, they were in the big banquet hall and they're all drinking, and I'm sure they were all obnoxious. And he called the chambermen, which were guys that had been castrated, so they didn't wasn't interested in the women, to come to him, and, and he told them, go get Queen Vashti, tell her to deck out. I want her to come and show off for all these men, because now he wanted to show that he not only was rich and powerful, he also had the best woman be the most beautiful woman around. But Queen Vashti re refused to come. So he sent them back again and said, I, I'm not asking her permission. I'm telling her to get in here. And they came back and said, she won't come. And the king was totally humiliated. He might be the king of the whole realm. He might be the richest man there is. But he couldn't control his own wife. Couldn't she? He, she wouldn't even come and and show up when he called her. I mean, what what did she expect? <laughs> She's nothing's good going to come of this. I googled Queen Vashti and Esther. I was so entertained with it. Google praised Vashti for standing up for herself. <laughs> how about how dumb can you get? <laughs> You know, uh, Google needed to read more than the first two chapters to see how this thing ends. And uh, and Google said about Esther was she was the perfect queen. She did exactly what she was told, when she was told, and how she was told. Google needed to read the rest of the uh, rest of the whole book of Esther and find out that girl had steel in her backbone. Toward the end, it shows how much steel she did have. Vashti was proud, haughty, disobedient. It doesn't take guts to be proud, haughty, and disobedient. It doesn't take guts to be loud and obnoxious. It takes guts to do the right thing and to follow through with it. And so that's what God needed to get rid of Vashti. And Vashti helped a lot by being such a jerk. God knew what she was. So the fifth thing that I learned through Esther 
And that is, there is no honor in demanding honor. There is no honor in demanding honor. Vashti was demanding honor, and the king was demanding honor, and neither one of them was willing to give over. And honor come is a natural, like love, it's a natural response of when someone's honorable. One thing about the king that I respected and found interesting, and that was he was thoroughly humiliated. He was mad as he could be, but he uh, appreciated the law so much so that he turned to his lawyers and his he had seven uh, lieutenants or main guys that he turned to to keep things legal. So he turned to the man and he said, how does the law read and what can I do? What are my options about this queen? Even though he was the highest figure of the known world, the most important, most the richest. He had he had the world in his hands. He was still willing to be subject to the law of the land, and this is a very important point because it's going to affect Esther's role and how she has to approach him and what happens in the situation that that causes all the Jews' lives to be at, at risk. But when the, remember there's 127 providences that are um, represented there. The women are with uh, Vashti, all the, all the wives and extra women they bring. And the men are all together. And they are all stunned, speechless that Queen Vashti dishonored her husband publicly like that. And they are truly horrified, and they made their voice known. And they really weren't as concerned about the king as they were about themselves. They said, all of the women all over and all of the known world are going to hear about this. And it's not just the rulers. It's going to be uh, it's going to be the guys that dig the ditches. It's going to be everybody. All the wives are going to show dishonor and disrespect because if the king can't control his own wife and make her obey him, what hope has any other guy? So I want you to listen to Alexander Scorby reading the scripture where it starts on verse 13, uh, chapter 1 on verse 13. And it's a beautiful the way he reads it. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Koshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law, because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains? And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported, The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she." And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan, for he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. 
that every man should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. So the sixth thing I want you to learn that I learned from Esther, and that is when people in leadership will decide the way a nation will go by how they live. So Queen Vashta had to be gotten rid of because she was an absolute top of the totem pole leadership. And all of the women all over everywhere would be dishonoring and disrespectful because, because that's their leader. That's how the lead, it's important how leadership responds to each other. As wives of men in leadership, we can literally shipwreck ministry by our attitude. Our attitude toward our husband, our attitude toward God, our attitude toward uh, how we live, toward each other. But the main thing is by honoring God, you honor your man. And people in leadership, women in leadership really need to keep this in mind. And you never know when God might choose you for a special role. I know that God has chosen me and my husband the last 60 years or so uh, for a special role. And now that we look at the time, we didn't know it. We were just doing what we, you know, we were just we were just coming up in the '60s during the hippie time, and everybody was wanting to talk about God, and uh, then the Vietnam War, and and so God just used us all during that time. But now we look back and we go like, wow, we are so thankful that we didn't, you know, I'm so thankful I didn't dishonor and disobey my husband. He hadn't always been the perfect human being as I have not either so that's where Queen Vashti right she needed to learn that you just as leaders you have a certain obligation before God and the people that you minister to so Queen Vashti just comes to an end that she has talked about and she is done she's over the Bible doesn't record how her later years were, if she had any later years. But I do know this, her life of power, wealth, and glory was gone for good. She suddenly realized that she was a loser. And her decision to dishonor was not her downfall. It was assuming that she was too important, too beautiful to replace I'm going to tell you something, nobody is too important to replace. So now the king doesn't have a queen. He's got a whole house full of concubines that he can call. But he needs a queen. The, the, the whole kingdom needs a queen. That's what life is all about. And so the lawyers, the seven men that sit around that are part of his leadership, I don't know, if, I'm sure they didn't call them lawyers. They were the lawmakers. They were like the, the government. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the queen this time was not only going to be the most beautiful one they could find, but a good-hearted one. So they told the king, said, let's have a, let's have a beauty contest and send out appointed men to go looking all over the whole 20, 127 providences. She didn't even have to speak his language, but we need the most beautiful young virgins we can find to try out. And they would be brought, once they were chosen to try out, they would be brought to the palace and they you know, I mean, they wouldn't have had a choice. So when they saw Esther, she, they said, she's, she's gorgeous. Let's take her. Well, Esther was a Jew, and Jews were basically slaves. They were low on the totem pole. And even though, and she was, she was a, an orphan. Her mom and dad both were dead. She was being raised by her uncle, Mordecai. And Uncle Mordecai was a businessman that uh, sat 
outside the gate of the palace where the businessmen do their business. And even though he was a Jew, uh, he still worked and did business, probably paid somebody got his money. I don't know how it worked. So Mordecai would have known she she didn't have a choice. So if they wanted to take her, they would take her. So they took her. And you remember that most of these girls would be coming from the countryside. No, I live in the countryside. I spend a good portion of my time taking care of my chickens and fixing fences and uh, hauling manure. And, yeah, I mean, if you're a countryside person, you're going to have dirty fingernails. <laughs> and you could have parasites. And uh, back then, I'm sure they might have lice. I've never had that. <laughs> but uh, so the girls couldn't just go right into the king. They spent six months in the palace being treated with uh, oil of myrrh. Myrrh is uh, the the stuff that drips from the myrrh tree. It's kind of like a it's thick, gooey stuff. And they turn it into oil, and that oil of myrrh would would knock out <clears throat> lice. They'd take it for parasites. They would rub it on the skin where there might be spots or something. They would. It was a time of cleansing. A whole six months, each girl. So they might bring in three girls a week for for weeks, and then months they would might have five or six. And so they the girls were stagged through the whole year. So each one would start their regiment as soon as she got there. So Esther started hers, and she had six months of oil of myrrh, and then she had six months of sweet oils like almond oil. And that would be rubbed on their hands, make them smooth and soft, rubbed on their face, and getting them in excellent condition. And during this time, each girl was given seven girls from, I mean, six girls from the house of girls to basically get her ready to see the king. And they also had the uh, castrated man that brought helped them find the good foods and uh, clean waters and everything they needed to prepare to get ready to see the king. When you think about the concubines in the palace, those girls might have spent one night with the king, might not have ever been with the king. They would have spent their entire life just serving there in the palace, helping someone like Esther or maybe cleaning up or cooking or uh, hosting people, they would have never had a chance to have a normal life or a family. The girls that were called in for the beauty contest, each night, each evening, a girl would be presented to the king, and the king would take her and spend the night with her. And uh, if he wasn't highly impressed, then she would just join the other women in the in the women's uh, house, they called it, the women's house. And so unless he remembered her by name and called and said, I want to spend the night with her, then he was done with her for the rest of her life. There she was in the woman's house. And so Esther saw the girls coming and going and ending up in the women's house, one right after the other. But I think it's Interesting, when I was reading this, that for the first time I realized that uh, there was a, a stiff competition, not among the girls, but the people that were preparing the girls, they wanted, they knew that whoever he chose was going to be, have authority over them. She was going to be queen. She, she, she would need to, they wanted somebody with a good heart that was, wasn't selfish or whiny or self-centered, they would have all worked hard to show her how to win the heart of the king. They would have helped her. And Esther was there for a whole year, and she obtained, the scripture said, grace and favor. 
So she wasn't whiny or selfish or self-centered. And so finally after a whole year, Esther is presented to the king. And out of hundreds of girls that had gone before him, the king goes, okay, I like this one. You have to think to yourself, so what was it that caused Esther's job was to make the king glad that he had her. Not that she she might not have been the most beautiful, although she was very beautiful, but something in her spirit and something in her action that night when they spent it together made the king want her to be the queen. And so Uncle Mordecai hears the tale, Esther's going to be queen. And he tells Esther, he said, whatever you do, don't tell them that you're a Jew. Nobody needs to know. Uh, because they took her out of her providence. They took her out of her home. They took her away from all of her family. So nobody knows. But Mordecai, her uncle, was a good, good man. And he worked, he had his business right outside the king's palace. So he could keep up with uh, Esther and know what was happening and send messages to her and um, you know he, he watched out for her. Esther hadn't been queen for very long at all. They had another big party when Esther became queen and celebrated so all of the 127 providences would know Vashti didn't honor me she's a goner. This gal she's good so we're, we're celebrating her. Queen Esther is our lady. So a short time after Esther became uh, queen, Uncle Mordecai was outside the gate of the palace doing the king's doing the business. And he heard that there were two guys that were planning mischief to depose the king. And they were going to kill him. And so he got word to Esther and told Esther, you need to make sure the king knows these two guys are going to kill him. You've got to stop it. And so sure enough, the king uh, got somebody finding out, a detective, and they figured out these guys were trying to kill the king, and they stopped them, and the king's life was saved. Nothing came of that. The king did not give any notice to it at all. But it's a very important situation that God had already allowed Mordecai to hear about it and to get the word to Esther and Esther to get the word to the king. So this is a very important situation that's going to come up later. At the same time as all this is happening, there is a real jerk that he, he he's a politician he wants to be seen he wants to be heard he wants honor he wants glory he wants money and he really is he he he's using his manipulative skills to uh get in with the king and sure enough the king promotes Haman and makes him one of his right hand men and Uncle Mordecai obviously did not like Haman and knew he was a fool. And and he just would not show Haman any honor whatsoever. Now, he, uh, Mordecai was not required to worship Haman or act like he was, you know, something special. But it's all he had to do is just honor his uh, Haman's new position like a military guy saluting or something. And Mordecai just went like, he was stubborn. He said, I'm not going to give him any honor. He's a jerk. And every single day, Mordecai would be reminded, Mordecai, do something to give a little honor. And Mordecai just flat refused. I mean, he just, I am not going to honor that jerk. So... This irritated Haman. Haman had everybody, everybody's being so honoring toward him. 
And, but Haman loved, loved honor and prestige. He loved it and he hated Mordecai like crazy because Mordecai was one person that didn't give him uh, honor. There is no honor in demanding honor. Remember that we did the fifth thing before. There is no honor in demanding honor. So the king wanted honor from the queen. The queen said she wasn't going to give any honor. And now Haman is trying to demand honor. So Haman said, if you're not going to honor me, then you're going to pay. So he goes to the king, it, uh, political intrigue and corruption has always been around. And so this is, this is the corruption there. He goes to the king, Haman does, and he said there's a, a group of, of people that live all over in all 27 providences, and they're Jews. They were brought in by Nebuchadnezzar when Babylon was, and they're still here. And uh, we need to get rid of them. They are causing trouble. We need to set up a time where, and we can't haul them in or anything, to make it easier. The best thing to do is set up a time months from now that in one day's time, anybody in any providence, in any of these 127 providence, has the right to go in and kill the Jew that's close to them and take over their land and goods. And the Jews would not have any way to defend themselves. So the king went, do these people really cause that much trouble? Haman says, all over the whole land, these people are these people have been troubled from the beginning. So the king loves the law, and he gets, says, okay, let's create a law that says on this particular date, which were several months away, on these two days, the people from that prov any providence can go against the Jews. And so the king had the law written, the scribes wrote it in all these different languages, and he put his seal uh, on his ring on it, and they sent him out uh, by horse and post. And uh, it took weeks and months to get there and then to get the news. And so the Jews began to hear about it all over Ethiopia and India and, you know, months passed. And they were so stressed out that they were all fixing to die on this particular day. And Mordecai hears about it. Of course, he's right there at the uh, palace. And he is brokenhearted that his people are fixing to die, and it's probably his fault because he just wouldn't honor Haman. Now Haman is in—he he is in his all his glory. He is just the happiest guy around. He goes and brags at home. The scripture tells about how he goes home and brags and brags and brags, and his wife and all his sons are around the table, and they just patting him on the back and saying, "This is just wonderful." They decide among themselves, they said, you know what? You need to have a, a gallows bill, big, tall gallows, uh, where uh, when the day comes, you can hang Mordecai on those gallows. So it took a while to get the wood and all that, and probably weeks, maybe months. But uh, the wife said, oh, you'll feel so much triumph. And just watching, uh, watching those gallows being built. So remember, we one of the things we learned is never assume, never assume that what you're doing is going to work, because it's not going to work. But Esther looks out and he, she sees Uncle Mordecai right there out in front of everybody, uh, putting ashes on his head and crying, and obviously very, very upset. 
And so Esther's looking out the castle window and saying, what is going on? What, what, what's happening? And so she sends a messenger down and says to Mordecai, what, what's going on? And Mordecai sends the message back and said, this is what Haman has done. All of the Jews are going to die unless, unless you do something. Esther goes, I'm just a young girl. Uh, you know that the law states I can't even go into the king without an invitation. And the king hasn't even been in to see me in a month. Uh, that's a long time for a man not to go see his wife. My husband would be having a breakdown. <laughs> I would be too. <laughs> so, um, King uh, Uncle Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, there comes a time in life when you have to lay down your life, even if it means you that you're dead, you need to do this because you don't know what God has. So Esther says, you know, like, uh, I can't even go into the king. I can't. I can't even address him. So how am I supposed to tell him? And Mordecai says, just, you need to do this. So I'm going to have Alexander Scorby's voice reading to you the scripture right here about what Mordecai says to Esther. I think it's a beautiful piece of scripture. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So from what we've learned from this scripture that Alexander Scorby just read, and that is the seventh thing, it goes back and reflects on the third thing, and that is, God sees the big picture. He sees what's best for many generations to come. And so he says to Esther, you don't know, Esther, you might be just a, a pretty little girl, but you don't know that God might have raised you up for such a time as this. That might be your whole life's job is because of this. So the seventh thing that I learned from studying Esther this time is I think maybe all of us are raised up for a time such as now. We all see very troubling things happening. And clearly it's not just the United States, it's all over the world. There are some really really different times that the world has ever seen. And uh, and just like Esther, we might be raised up to, to step up to do something that might require our life like it was Esther. So Esther tells her uncle Mordecai, she said, okay, my girls, my six girls that... Uh, took care of me during my time to be queen. We're going to fast and pray, and I want you to fast and pray, and I want you to tell everybody around to fast and pray for three days. All other Jews, no water, no food for three days and pray. I think this is interesting that a woman, a young woman, who is responsible for that ministry, that she had the liberty to ask them to pray and fast. I mean, it was her life on the stake first. So she asked them, let's pray and fast. So this now that the time schedule had gone from months to days now, so there, the gallows have been built, and Esther is praying and fasting for three days. And so now we're going to see how God's use, using things in the past. So the eighth thing we're going to learn is that God uses 
dreams and disrupted sleep. And he brings about information in order for us to do his will. So one night, well, during this immediate time while they're praying and fasting, the king can't sleep. He's totally disrupted. And there's no internet, no television, no radio. He doesn't really have any way of entertaining or passing the hours. So he loves, he loves law. So he calls his scribe in and he said, read me from past legal issues that have happened in the last three years or so. And so the scribe turned back three years and began to read through. And as he read, he came up on the issue when Esther first became queen and she got the information to the king from Uncle Mordecai that there were two men that were plotting to take his life. And the king listened and said to the scribe, what did we do for Mordecai? And the scribe said, nothing is recorded that you gave, you didn't give him any honor or anything. And the king's just like, how could I have missed this? And he said, tomorrow or as soon as possible, I am going to bring great honor to Mordecai. So God was answering prayer, which Mordecai didn't know anything about. Esther didn't know anything about. Haman didn't know anything about. Remember, Haman's the bad guy. So let me get this in perspective. So Esther's praying and fasting for three days. And after three days, she decides, tries to go to the palace and is standing in the corner. The king probably, we don't know if the king has uh, got the message about Mordecai yet, but he will within the next 24 hours. Anyway, he sees her and he knows that the law is so strict that if he doesn't say, welcome in, Esther, then she can be put to death. The law is very strict. Probably set it up after uh, Queen Vashti was knocked out. But he can see that Esther is standing against the wall and showing humility and honor. And he knows that it's got to have be something very pressing or she would not be there. Uh, and so he said to her, come in, Esther, so she knows she's going to live through this. And he says, what can I do for you? But Esther knows her what she's got to say is negative, it's complicated, and uh, she can't just say it right there. She can't expose Haman. It's just too much. And so she said, would you come to dinner tonight? And King says, sure, I can do that. And she said, well, would you bring Haman? Now, the king wonders what is going on. He know he's intrigued. He knows something is going on, that something is pressing Esther. But Esther just wants them to come and eat. So uh she go they go to come and dine and oh Haman he thinks he is he is something. He uh, several verses about him boasting to his family. Now nobody is invited to go to the Queen's dinner except him and the king and he just really really is boasting and carrying on all that time so then esther says to the king would you come again tomorrow night so probably between these two nights that night after he has his first dinner is when he stays awake and he finds out about mordecai how mordecai saves his life and so that in between those two days is when Haman comes in and he says, Haman, if somebody had saved my life and uh, what should I do for those people? Somebody I really want to honor, what should I do for them? And Haman thinks the king is talking about him. He's gotten so big headed and assuming. 
He thinks the king's talking about him. But the king's really talking about Mordecai. And when Haman finds out that he has to put a royal robe on Mordecai and walk him through the city and call out, this man has honored the king. He is greatly honored in the uh, Mordecai is just broke. He goes to his wife and his kids again, and he's just moaning and groaning and saying he just can't hardly bear it. It's just worse than anything. Just the mo what most terrible thing ever happened to him. So there's the gallows that he's going to hang Mordecai on is within just a week or two. And now uh, he has to show him honor. So then... But he knows that he's invited to the queen's house the second time to dine. So he must have been a he he must have been in an emotional wreck trying to put all these things together, sickened that he had to spend his day honoring Mordecai, but delighted that he's getting to go to Esther's the second night. And the king knows something's up. And so on the second night, after preparing their meal, setting it down, the king says to her, okay, Esther, what is going on? You need to tell me. And Esther tells the king how Haman has manipulated him to create a law that's going to kill Esther, Uncle Mordecai, and all of the rest of the Jews and thousands and thousands of people in 127 different providences in all these different languages. And the king is so upset that Haman, uh, that he trusted Haman, and Haman was, did this, that the king rushes out the door into the garden so he can think it through and calm and down and th he's thinking about the law that he signed into place that he has been tricked. He is so angry. And he is in the garden for just a few minutes and Haman jumps up and totally panics and grabs Esther by the arm, starts shaking her, trying to make her forgive him and to, and to hear him. It, Please don't do this. You got and he is wrestling with uh, Queen Esther and they fall on Esther's bed and she is screaming and fighting with all her might and the king rushes in to save her and I think man, Haman <laughs> God can really mess with bad guy <laughs> you can count on God really messing with bad guy I was just really happy with the way this all worked out. And see, you know, if I'd been there at the time, I'd think, oh, this is terrible. You know, it's just emotional wreck. It's just, it's just all these bad things are happening. But God really wanted the king to turn totally for his lovely bride and against this guy. So the ninth thing that I learned, and it it might take time for events to move forward when something evil has come. And you might even have to have the law to help straighten it out because the, the devil can cause so much chaos. But in the end, trusting God and moving forward, you get good results. And so, so, now we have come to the very longest verse in the whole Bible, and it's Esther 8, 9. And the reason this verse is so long is that it took a whole lot of legal planning and undoing to undo the damage that Haman had tried to do. So Alexander Scorby is going to read this long Verse. As a matter of fact, he's going to read uh, 9, 10, uh, yeah, verses 9 and 10 for you. So here's, here's how. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants 
and the deputies and rulers of the provinces which are from India unto Ethiopia, an hundred twenty and seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name, and sealed it with the king's ring, and sent letters by posts on horseback, and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. I think it's interesting how God says not only what they're going to write, but uh, how it's going to be delivered. He tells the camels and the donkeys, and they're all going to have to hurry. They're all going to have to rush the post out. To I mean, they're going to have to go to India. They're probably in close to Iran. That's way. India is a long way. Uh, Ethiopia is a long, it's a long ways. Take maybe weeks to get there. So he said he hands the pen to Mordecai. The king does, and he says, "Write anything you want for the law. The law will state what you said." So Mordecai tells the scribes, and all these different scribes are, are writing in all these different languages. And they say, look at on that appointed day, the, the king can't, can't, uh, say, can't destroy the law once it's written. So the law says the Jews can be, uh, they can be persecuted that day. So he, all he does is add to the law saying the Jews have a right to defend themselves. So that's what Mordecai had to figure out with the scribes on how to not change, not destroy the law, but add to the law. So he said the Jews have a right to defend themselves and whoever they kill in the process of defending themselves, they can have the spoils. So they write the new law in all these different languages, send it out to all, to all the uh, lieutenants and deputies and rulers and everybody in all these different languages and post it up and let everybody know. So on the appointed day, and this is really what the book of Esther is all about right here. On the appointed day, the Jews in, in far out providences kill 7,500 people. Was it 7,500 or 75,000? I can't even remember. You have to read the scripture on that. And it said, I'm not good in numbers. <laughs> uh, it said that the people that came up against the Jews, uh, the Jews defended themselves and killed those people. But the Jews said, we don't want their stuff. We don't want their land. We don't want their houses. We don't want any of their stuff. We just want them to leave us alone. And so... God put it in the heart of the king that this was going to be something that he wanted the Jewish people to remember forever. So he said, I want you to set aside two days out of the year, these two days, as a special holiday that all Jews through all of history will recount this story of Esther, and you'll see that Esther, as a young girl, was willing to stand for her people. So from this day forward, there for all the Jews right up until today, they all still celebrate Purim, which is, which is set aside the last month, the 14th and the 15th day of uh, of that of the last month, everybody is to celebrate, have parties, give gifts. Uh, they're to tell the story of Esther. They they need to give, especially give gifts to the poor Jews, and special gifts. And then uh, for generations and generations to come, um, they're going to know the story of Esther. And they're going to know the celebration started with her and that they were going to call it Purim. So the law was set in place. 
I mean, it legally became a law of the Medes and Persians that this day was the day that all Jews would celebrate. I think it's interesting, too, in one of the verses it said, uh, Mordecai had so much power that there was a fear that we're not going to trespass against Mordecai. We know what happened to Haman. And uh, that a lot of people converted to Judaism. They went from being the slaves and the lesser people to where people were deciding, well, let's just be a Jew. It seems to think they're a pretty good idea, just be a Jew. And so the last bit of thing I learned from Esther, and that was when the king called Esther in, and he said, Esther, uh, now the Jews are saved, and I want to ask you, is there anything else that you want? And Esther said, I want not just Haman, but I want all ten of his sons hanged on the gallows that he built for Uncle Mordecai. And so the king said, we'll do it. So the tenth thing I learned from the book of Esther is this. Never underestimate the resolve of a woman. A strong woman is not like Vashti, selfish, self-centered, assuming, and disobedient. A strong woman is a woman of resolve. Some situation calls for us girls to be sweet and gentle and tender. And other ones calls call for us to be warriors ready to take out the enemy. And... Uh, that's where Hester had come. She wanted them gone. No chance. And they, she wanted everybody to know about it. She wanted on those gallows. And so that's the tenth thing. Never underestimate us gals. <laughs> I hope y'all enjoyed the book of Esther. I sure did.